Hello and welcome to the Monocle Culture Show with me, Robert Bounds. It's the start of a new season, and that season, by the way, everybody, is summer, just in case you're in England and you were wondering. Therefore, it's time for us to dust off the crystal ball and find out what we'll be watching, reading and listening to this summer. Joining me on the programme today are the TV critic Scott Bryan, Deputy Features Editor for the Evening Standard, Susanna Butter, and Editor at Dice, Leonie Cooper. Notepads at the ready, then, as we give you this season's cultural checklist. Welcome to the programme, everybody. Actually, decrying the English summer. It's kind of a temperate here in Studio One. It's fine. It's muggy outside, cool, calm and collected inside. I'm loving it. Yeah? Yeah, this is the perfect temperature. You said this is the perfect temperature. You sit there looking. You look quite kind of arms folded. This is how I normally sit. This is Scott's thinking pose. This is his Rodin pose. Or lack thereof. Yeah. (laughs) In fact, Scott, well piped up. We're going to start with you. It's been a pretty good year for TV in the UK. It's been brilliant. So far. Yeah. Fleabag, Years and Years, Chernobyl, Killing Eve, mm. Derry Girls, which yes. you came on and talked about and loved. So it's been pretty vintage, and that's the spring. Can the summer match it? What's on now and is going to be that's going to be as good? So this is a really interesting thing because I write down like an end-of-year list in my notes app, and it's yeah. already at the length it was in the first six months of this year from last year. So Using the so- different-sized font. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, just, just by the sheer number of shows. But when I look back at this, I realise that all of those ones were ones that are quite hard to predict. They come out of nowhere. You know, I'm going to predict some stuff and then whether they'll end up, we don't know because there might be a massive hit anyway. But um, one that's uh, stood up for me is uh, Catch-22, which is a TV adaptation of the uh, famous book. And it's been executive produced by George Clooney. It just started on Channel 4 in the UK, but it's already available on Hulu in the US. And the reason why I just really like it is just that... It's sort of a thing that could have been a film, but the fact that it's a mini-series, it's got sort of five episodes, is perfectly well-paced. It's about John Uzerian and the whole sort of concept about Catch-22 is is about a guy who's trying desperately to leave the Air Force, but with every single time that he hits the required missions for him to go and leave, they just increase the number of missions. And he tries to go and declare himself insane, but the only sane person would ever think that they are insane, therefore he wouldn't be able to leave from insanity. And that's where we get the whole kind of reflexive, strange cultural kind of verb from, the Catch-22. How is it played? Because it's a strange, it's an infuriating and satisfying novel to read in equal measure because of this thing, because you kind of know where it's going all the time. It's quite a big book too. Although you don't know the ending of it, you're kind of caught in this perpetual vicious cycle that Yossarian faces. How have they done this? On screen. By the way, who plays Yossarian? Yossarian is played by Christopher Abbott. Very who... good looking. <laughs> yes. Like Marlon Brando. Yes. <laughs> Susanna Butter there. With <laughs> a, 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 a neat cultural take. Thank and you. And a very good actor as and well, a, obviously. And a fine actor. Yeah. So, <laughs> so the handsome... I've forgotten his name now. Christopher Abbott. Christopher Abbott. Yes. Have you... He's Charlie and Girls. Yes, he is. Oh, yeah. okay. So Char- I spent the first episode thinking, where do I recognise him from? To be honest, that's how I spend it as well. Because I'm always rubbish with names. So I'm always sort of just keeping a look in terms of who's going in. Because I'm just like, even if I've seen them in a hundred things, all the shows merge in my head. But essentially, to answer your question, the book is very repetitive and can be quite furious. And the TV show, I think, reflects that. It's very repetitive. There are many elements that start off with being, you know, the same storyline when he's trying to sort of put himself into hospital again and again and again. But what is 
I think the real sort of highlight of this show is that it starts being really lighthearted and jovial. And then as it goes on, it becomes more and more and more serious as it heads towards its end point. And it sort of starts as, as a circle. You sort of see the ending in the very beginning shot. Then it ends in that same shot and you try to work out how it gets there. And I think it's got a very serious point to say, but just A, about the madness of war, yeah. but also B, about the madness of just the institutions that govern all of the rules that set our lives. And it's got an interesting 2019 edge about mental health and the effects of post-traumatic stress disorder. So even though it's in, in the war, it kind of feels quite relevant to stuff we're talking about now. Yeah, there is something, it is always halfway between like Full Metal Jacket and Groundhog Day, yeah. it seems. And it seems like that. It, there's such not a lot of absurdity in the book. And yeah, and I kind of feel like Kubrick could have made a wonderful film about this because it's got that, it's got those ridiculous kind of cartoonish characters who you can imagine you'd love to cast yourself if you were to put it in Kubrick's hands. And this kind of circular storyline and the rest of it. So is it five hours, Scott? Roughly. I'd say it's it's like a, so Channel 4 is showing it at the moment. But it's, yeah, so they, they have about 50 minute episodes. But I just like it because it's kind of the case of you do your 50 minutes and then you have a brief. Yeah. And then you can start on the next one. TV gym. Yes, which, which is what I love about TV. <laughs> um, but it's a case of, I think if, if it was a film, I think it would be a bit against it because they would have to cut a lot of it out. And yeah. it's the detail that what makes it really good. You need that kind of that kind of endless kind of mad circularity of it in order to get the vibe of it. A feature yeah. film of an hour and a half or even two hours, I know what you mean, you'd kind of miss out yes. that kind of infuriatingness of the of the circularity of the story. I think there's sometimes with things that I go, oh, this should have been a film or this should have been a TV because sometimes it just suits the format. Like Good Omens, which is a show with David Tennant and Michael Sheen, I think could have been a film. Yeah. But they made it into a five-hour, many multi-part episode series. And it's just, for me, rubbish because there's too much detail. Yeah. And actually get that crap out and keep it condenser could be an actually firm product. Okay, Catch-22, it's on Channel 4 in the UK, it's on Hulu in the US. Orange is the New Black returns to Netflix on the 26th of July. Yes. Are we talking off the back of the old one or are you fully up to your armpits in the new one? So, I mean, I say that this is the final series. So it's been probably Netflix's first big show alongside House of Cards and I, I think the reason why sort I picked this homegrown thing the homegrown yeah. thing their first big original series well one of the first big ones and I think the reason why I really like this is that it sort of shows how far we've come in terms of Netflix taking over our lives where the first ones are starting to either wrap up and end and it's also a show that I think has evolved from just being about a one woman in prison by Piper Chapman then her experiences and then the supporting cast who are phenomenal branching out in their own storylines and then that's much more become the focus of the show and it's now taken a force of its own and I think that the fact that it managed to talk about so many important issues particularly within the prison system with corruption police brutality issues surrounding race and reincarceration I think it managed to be quite innovative and break ahead of its time and what I think is quite interesting is that if you're looking at the more recent Netflix productions that are coming through I just think that a lot of them lack the impact and probably household naminess. They're spending so much money on content that I think new, exciting shows are much harder for them to come through, particularly that there's so many other streaming providers now coming in, that I think Netflix is going to have a hard one when a lot of these big old brands that established them go. It's a funny one because we talk about Netflix, its competitors being Amazon and Hulu and all these people, as much as the legacy broadcasters and all the rest of it, is in a kind of production sense, is Netflix's own worst enemy, Netflix, and its desire to swamp the world with 
programs. I can't keep up. I, mean, I there can't is a, keep up. The blog that I read the most is basically telling you what's good on Netflix now because there's no hope of you possibly knowing yourself no. unless you're a TV pundit. I Scott. think even if you're um, a TV pundit, genuinely, <laughs> like like four, like they release four to five things a week now. It used to be just the one. Plus, yeah. there's all of the stuff available on you know iPlayer and all of that stuff. It's impossible for anybody to keep up. And sometimes I think to myself, there is a risk of them becoming a victim of their own success because they're spending money on a lot of stuff that people aren't going to see. And I think that's the problem. Like, I think it's an art of being human that you just don't have that concentration to be able to keep on top of it. Plus, but also, it's the summer, right? Yeah, and it's the summer. <laughs> and it's also the case that a lot of the, the shows on there, like The Office in the US, are now leaving Netflix because NBC, who own the rights, are like, why are we giving this away to Netflix? We're going to have our shows back. So that's a big challenge for them as well. So Orange is the New Black, is that the final series? That is the final series, and that's out on the July the 26th. Okay, and it's the next series of... Stranger Things. Yes. Returning soon to our screens at the beginning of July. Yeah. I've always loved this. Kind of dipped a bit in season two. Where are we with season three? Have you seen much of it? I have seen it. There is an embargo, so I can't say too much about it. But I say that it's a show which I think has recognised the issues that it had within its second series. Okay. There were episodes and there were strands that I think... They felt that they didn't know what they were necessarily doing with and they were just sort of making up as they were going along and inventing backstories for people who we don't care about too much. Mm. And I think that what they've just started to do is take what was the stronger parts of the second series and the first series elements that we love. And really sort of the show, I feel, is strong because of its nostalgia and the collective memories it makes us have of our growing up and and the 80s in general. And the fact that I feel that they've expanded that to the nth degree, so much so it is more 80s than the 80s. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah, I can imagine that. And I was going to ask you about that, how that feels, because I kind of love that. Yeah, no, I mean, I love it as well. Sometimes it feels like it can become a bit of a parody of itself. But I was reading today about how... The reason why the show is successful for Netflix is not just the viewing figures, it's the merchandise that creates it. It's like the Hollywoodification of selling stuff. And like the Coca-Cola company are bringing back New Coke, like the big failure that they had in the 1980s when they changed the recipe. They're bringing it back for Stranger Things, like their biggest (laughs) failure, bringing it back temporarily to promote Stranger Things. And I think it's just like the world beyond the show. Because I feel that, that where we are as a society is that we sometimes fetishize nostalgia. And I think like Friends now, the sitcom, is bigger than it probably was in the 90s because our generation Apparently keeps Apparently so, and it's, and, and, it, and it's on Netflix. And yeah. it's on Netflix. And I think it's the same with the 80s. The 80s are bigger now than they were in the 80s. <laughs> That's so good. Please can we use that quote on Absolutely. the... Absolutely. Uh, yeah, exactly. And just quickly on Stranger Things is... So we're saying it's kind of back to form. Is it Duffer Brothers still written and directing and doing pretty much yep. everything? So same cast, yeah. uh, same people making it. Um, and then the whole, the reason why it's out on July 4th is that some of the elements of the plot from the first episode are set around the start of July as well on Independence Day. So okay. that's why it's been released. In the same case that with Series 2, it was out for Halloween. Okay, it all hangs beautifully together. It they does. still got it, <laughs> those guys. For now we hope. <laughs> okay, Catch-22 is out on Channel 4. Orange is the New Black returns to Netflix on the 26th of July. And Stranger Things is on Netflix from Thursday the 4th of July, Independence Day. As Scott said, I no longer needed to say it. Susanna Butter, hi. Hello. Have we recovered from Catch-22 fever? <laughs> Be still, my heart. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if we've got time for two or three novels. The first is David Nichols's new Unsweet Sorrow. I read the blurb and I was like, hang on. 
Is this? I'm sure I've got. I've had a Nick Hornby feeling come over. I me. was just going to say, very Nick Hornby, oh, okay. and there's, there's so, a music yeah. link as well, which is quite Nick Hornby. Later, there's a character who runs a failing record shop. Yeah, and what universe are we here? It's very nostalgic. This is. I felt a little bit ashamed picking it because I enjoyed it for the same reason that I enjoy rom-coms. And it's definitely a soft summer read, but the reason why it works is that it's not just soft. It has a wider point to make uh-huh. without taking itself too seriously. David Nichols hasn't written a book since 2014. Is that he, The Bone Clocks? Was his last that was Us. Oh, OK. And then he did the Melrose adaptation, so that kept him very busy. It was brilliant. And this is slightly in one-day territory because it's about first love and explaining that all very vividly it's a protagonist who is an awkward teenage boy who you kind of see where he's coming from it's kind of quite painful at times but then it's David Nichols acknowledges that love stories are boring so there's parts where he says well you can make up what happened here and and then interlaced with that there's Charlie's family situation which is his father who ran a record shop which failed is having mental health problems and his mum can't deal with it so Charlie has to bear the brunt of a lot of that which forces him to grow up quite quickly. And then one day he falls in love with Fran Fisher who's a posh girl from the posh school. They live in this town, kind of anonymous town just outside Sussex where there's no real landmarks, kind of the park is called Dogshit Park, the <laughs> alley is... The alley where everyone goes I to the loo. Near there. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Lovely that place. Park, I know. Don't we all? <laughs> <laughs> the ironically named Dogship Park, which is one of the Wisley Gardens. <laughs> and so and are we in it feels like a funny thing, but is this is a sort of post Nick Hornby novel. David Nichols is quite a chameleon as a writer, isn't he? He can turn his hand to so many things. It's interesting you say we're kind of back in one day territory in terms of the love story and all the rest of it. Does it feel like a personal thing? this novel? No, I think it's more universal than that. He's good at tapping into those bigger emotions. He gets particular in terms of talking about the music they listen to, there's kind of Nina Simone songs and and then there's a wider Shakespeare parallel because Fran and Charlie are putting on Romeo and Juliet. So it's general love story, tragic. On that note, I quite like the last line of the blurb. He says, but if Charlie wants to be with Fran, he must take on a challenge that could lose him the respect of his friends and require him to become a different person. He must join the company. And if the company sounds like a cult, the truth is even more appalling. The price of hope, it seems, is Shakespeare. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a good blurb, right? (laughs) There's this kind of knowing, dreaded English lit student kind of thing coming off it as well. Which, and also yeah. David Nichols knowing all the things that he could easily be attacked for. Yeah. Like the it's just a love story, it's just feelings. But then I quite enjoyed that lightness of touch because I feel like I've read a lot of books by female authors about the state of the nation and referencing Me Too and they're brilliant. But it's quite nice to go back to a straightforward love story. So that is Sweet Sorrow, new from David Nichols, published by Hodder and Stoughton on the 11th of July. The Man Who Saw Everything, new from Deborah Levy. Talk us through this. The Man Who Saw Everything is a very obscure book. It's Deborah Levy's first fiction book since Hot Milk in 2016. In between that time, she's written two autobiographies, which kind of coloured how I read The Man Who Saw Everything because once you know so much about the author, you're kind of thinking, well, is this her? But it's about a guy called Saul Adler and it's 1989 and he's in love with Jennifer Morseau but he's not allowed to describe her because they're both kind of quite pretentious nightmares and they've decided (laughs) that as a man he's not allowed to describe a woman because all of his words will be old. He's doing a PhD on Stalin, kind of tyrannical masculinity, 
and he's... That's, that's okay, that's quite... Okay, yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Wasn't <laughs> Universal theme so, together. Yeah, so good, yeah. The worst culprit of me too. That's why Summer Beach reads all yeah. yeah, exactly. One to read on the tube. Yeah. And, and in order to do this, he's going to East Berlin. On his way, he has to take a picture of him crossing Abbey Road for the sister of the person he's staying with who's obsessed with the Beatles, and he gets run over. Then later on, we skip forward. Finally, someone's got them run over doing that, <laughs> even if it's in a novel. Um, the slow motion crossing, people yeah. just got impatient. Um, and then he gets run over again, which is quite careless of him. In 2016, it flashes back everything you thought about him, you realise might not be true, and it's Deborah Levy having fun with perceptions. There's a lot in this book. It's only 198 pages, and it takes in jumping back and forth, changing cast, kind of people come and go and you're not sure if they're real or not. There's bits that are a bit surreal and trippy for the sake of it. Like there's a girl who he meets when she's upside down brushing her hair and reading beat poetry at the same time. There are kind of images that are very original um, might so not be for everyone. Postmodern, and it does it mess. And so obviously it uses these tricks to mess around with the narrative. Do you wonder where you are in the story? You wonder where you... you are. You wonder where Saul is, kind of mentally, if you trust him, and everything's very fluid. So he's his sexuality is fluid, and he struggles with that a lot. He's got a very dominant father figure who we don't know when he died or not. It leaves a lot to the imagination, but it's still. Levy's a brilliant, brilliant author and she manages to make it quite compelling. It doesn't give you anything, it doesn't spoon feed and there's no answers really, which is very different to David Nichols. So they're yeah. quite a pair. <laughs> I kind of love the idea of this. We talked about Max Porter's Lanny on this yeah. programme kind of near the beginning of the year, which was a kind of novel that messed around with all sorts of ways of doing narrative and, and speech and all the rest of it. But it was completely cogent and you kind of pretty much knew where you were the whole time in it. It can be done so so much in the interest of literature, but so much also in the service of the reader. Are we in kind of, not in Lanny territory in terms of story and all the rest of it, but do you know what I mean? That way of doing, of being tricksy, but being wholesome and compelling at the same time. Is that what Deborah Levy's done with this? Yeah, it's a similar original take, but unlike Lanny, it's told in quite a straight way. There's no kind of freeform verse passages. You're with one person the whole time, which... Levy's very aware is a problem because he's always guessing what his girlfriend thinks and he's quite neurotic so he's saying oh I think she thinks I have too much power when we have sex and tearing him up over this and you never you hear from her I think once but that's deliberate yeah and also in Deborah Levy fashion work's a huge theme and the idea that to Saul his work's so important and then Jennifer thinks he doesn't care about her work and she talks about that very well it is the man who saw everything apart from Two Cars, by Deborah <laughs> Levy. It'll be published by Hamish Hamilton on the 29th of August, as recommended by Susanna Butter. Thank you. We're finishing with music. Leonie Cooper. Should we have a bit of Liam to kick us off? I know that guy. Oh, yeah. Welcome back, Mr Gallagher. Well, talking about 90s nostalgia and 80s nostalgia, obviously Liam Gallagher, the front man of the greatest British band of the 90s. 
don't at me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yes. It's been, it's literally as well, it's been 10 years since Oasis split as well, 25 years since Definitely Maybe came out, Whoa. a quarter of a century ago. Oh. And I hate to be one of those people that says, doesn't that make you feel old? But doesn't that make you feel old? I certainly was listening to that in the fourth form at school. Yeah. So, yeah. I was 10 when that record came out and right. I got it on cassette from our price and played <laughs> it a lot. And then I discovered Blur, but I realise now that Oasis are the better band. That is not received wisdom. I like how you've done that. Mm. Everyone comes goes the other way around. Oh, no, no. Um, it's, I mean, this sounds exactly like... <laughs> well, kind of like Oasis, definitely not not really like Noel's solo stuff, although a little bit. I mean, there's, no, we're well, all in the same food groups. Yeah, still. well, Noel wrote all of the Oasis songs, essentially. So Liam is doing something very different. He's got the big guns in here as well. He's written it with Greg Kirsten and Andrew Wyatt, who have written with Adele and Lily Allen, mm-hmm. Bruno Mars. In fact, Wyatt co-wrote Shallow from A Star Is Born. So the man who wrote this record has got an Oscar. Yes. So you, you can't fault that. And in fact, Liam said he wrote some of the songs on the first records because this is his second solo album. And there's this great quote. He's like, I know my strengths and I know my limitations. I'm an OK songwriter, but I'm a great singer and frontman. I want yeah. the second album to be a step up. He's basically saying, yeah, the first solo album was all right because I wrote a bit of it. But if I don't really write much of the second one, it's going to be even better. <laughs> Place your strengths, man. Exactly. Yeah. And he is like, he is a brilliant frontman. He's an entertainer. He is not necessarily a, a songwriter, but he can belt out a tune. And I've seen him play live this month twice. And it has been fantastic. The way he gets a crowd going still after 25 years of doing it is phenomenal. He, he is like the last true rock star in this country. Again, to mention Blur, Damon Albarn, great at doing stuff on stage, but not a rock star. No. Liam is a rock star and is there in that kind of aggressive, confrontational name of this album. This album is called Why Me? Why Not? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, okay, <laughs> yeah. I get it. That's cl- I get classic Gallagher style. Yeah, exactly what you're doing with this. There's been a film out called mm. As It Was, which mm-hmm. came out a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. I went to see that as a big Oasis of file as uh-huh. well and enjoyed it a lot and I want well, my favorite bit of it I think was him saying yeah Noel wrote the songs I made the I make the songs exactly Which, again he's kind of got an answer for everything although it is a hagiographic movie that yeah it definitely I mean it's nowhere near as good as supersonic which is the Oasis film yeah. that came out God about four years ago which is brilliant but this is it's lovely and what's nice is seeing Liam kind of interact with also his family but also with his girlfriend and manager Debbie Gwyther who was a real important factor in getting the first album out the first solo album out there's a kind of bit in the film where he basically says he was just sitting on his ass, not doing anything and so Debbie's like do you want to just make a record I think it'd be quite good so he kind of shuffles down to the studio and the album did phenomenally well it went in at number one it's gone platinum he did Finsbury Park last year which was amazing it was a heroic comeback there were seven singles on the album as well which is a fair amount that's like good like 75 percent of the record is he on good voice because at the tail end of that and when he was warming up for his first album he was kind of a bit nervous of going on stage and kind of you know i think he loses his voice when he's on stage in san paolo or somewhere yeah. and buenos aires in fact mm. it is and you kind of feel sorry for him you know there's a lot of him running around and being fit and mm. not being the liam of old how does he sound? He sounds fantastic. Those last, yeah, those okay. two times I saw him recently. He's good. He knows what he's doing. I mean, nothing's pitched too high for him. He's yeah. working within the notes that he's good at. But he sings very from the throat. He's not a classically trained singer, obviously. So I don't think he's doing his voice any good. But that raspy, yeah. oasis-y sound is still there. And, and from this record, so there's only two songs out already. The Shockwave, which we just heard, which melodically 
I think it was a lot to spread your love by Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. Yeah, if it's very similar. That came out in two thousand one. Well, again, terrifyingly. Speaker killing baseline. Yeah. on that song. Hell yeah. yeah! And then the second single, "The River," which has got these lines like "Don't believe celebrities, money sucking MPs," is this very kind of call to armsy kind of song. It's quite basic is like how society is stuffed i mean he's not reinventing the wheel but you don't want liam to reinvent the wheel you just want him to roll it along <laughs> roll with it we maybe need. someone might say <laughs> he's gonna say what he said yeah let anybody get in his way <laughs> yeah, yeah we, i think so yeah well, we don't need to reinvent the wheels i need wheels <laughs> exactly. okay liam gallagher's new album why me why not is out on warner records on september the 20th Next up, it's Lana Del Rey. That is new from Lana Del Rey from an album called Norman Fucking Rockwell. <laughs> Great name for a record. Are we ironising the American dream here, perchance? I mean, Norman fucking Rockwell. The thing is about (laughs) Lana Del Rey is she has this, she loves American culture, Americana 20th century stuff, but it's always Elvis, Marilyn, James Dean, Mustangs, leather, leather jackets, blue jeans, and now Norman Rockwell, who is obviously an iconic artist and illustrator, but not very sexy. No. I don't think. It's just kind of pictures of like women in kitchens and kind of men fixing trains. Actually, one second, men I fixing think he trains. Did the sorry. Com- men fixing trains. Sorry. <laughs> they get Susanna Butter going. <laughs> he did the copper tone. There's a wonderful mural uh, hmm. on the side of a building in Miami, which is an old copper tone advert. It's a sexy thing of a girl's bikini bottoms being pulled okay. down by a little yappy type dog. All right, sounds so hot. I think he kind but of weird. It's, it's sort of it is it's kind <laughs> of like weird. hot but weird. That's Lana Del Rey's hot vibe. But weird. Though. It's totally so, Lana, Lana Del Rey's vibe. It. Yeah. So this album there isn't actually a specific release date. She said last week in Dublin on stage that the album will come out in two months and this is kind of the most that's been said about when the album's going to be released it's been spoken about since god almost a year ago and there was a press release at the beginning of the year that said it'll be coming out halfway through 2019 so i think we can kind of rest assured that it'll be out at the end of august possibly and so this is her sixth album in nine years which by modern standards i think is pretty prolific, prolific. yeah uh, her last was lust for life in 2017 and that had stevie nicks on it had asap rocky on it had the weekend on it and she was still doing that kind of trap hip-hop influence thing which she has done since the beginning of her career but from the tracks that we've heard so far there's three tracks out from this record we can't really hear that sound at all and this is her first record that she's done with jack antonoff producing so he is in a band called Fun and a band called Bleachers. Fun, I think, won a Grammy, but they're not very good. And Bleachers aren't very good either. But as a producer, he is very in demand, especially among a certain kind of artist, certain kind of female edgy pop artist. Uh-huh. So he's worked with Lord, he's worked with St. Vincent, Colin Ray Jepsen, even Taylor Swift he's done stuff with. And obviously he's trying new stuff out with Lana. Lana's trying new stuff out with him. She's said before in interviews about the record that she's trying to go for a Laurel Canyon sound. And I know that doesn't sound... That can mean a lot of things, yeah, doesn't it? I know that doesn't sound like much when you talk about Lana where it's like, well, everything's a bit California and hazy and stuff like that. But there's a real sort of psychedelic feeling to some of the songs. There's a song called... Lower Canyon 68 vibe. Yes, yeah, kind of Joni Mitchell, Our House, that's it. You know, she's wearing a caftan, I imagine. (laughs) 
<laughs> and there's a song on the record called Venice Bitch. Do you see what she's done there? Classic. Edgy. <laughs> Which is like nine and a half minutes long. So it's the longest track that Lana's ever done. And it seems to also be her most out of character song. It's got this drifting Beach Boys-esque vibe. Also Tame Impala, Psychedelics and a lot of a, a kind of a lighter touch than her normal material which is quite dramatic and heavy handed and a consumptive maiden yeah. but she's really kind of yeah lifted things up and it, it's very dreamy and, and just lovely what's more like classic Lana is a song called Mariner's Apartment Complex which has got this country swagger to it and that's a bit Grand Parsonsy as well and there's kind of lyrics on it about Jesus but it's done in this kind of camp way which is again very Lana like John Waters meets Leonard Cohen Wow, I love all of these things. Yeah. I love a consumptive maiden. I love all those analogies. <laughs> I love a music critic simply describing a band as not very good. Poor old I the mean, fun. I called them know. the fun. I put the definite article <laughs> the like someone's granddad. They are no fun. <laughs> they are no fun. I just, you know, Shit sandwich. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but he's a very good producer. <laughs> that is Lana Del Rey, Norman fucking Rockwell. It's out on Polydor and Interscope Records in about two months from now. Roughly estimating a prox. ETA. Yeah. A prox. Mm-hmm. Okay. Leonie Cooper, thank you very much indeed. I really want to listen to both of those. In fact, all six or seven of those things. That brings us to the end of today's programme. It's been quite quick, hasn't it? Quick fire. Thanks to my guests, Scott Bryan, Leonie Cooper and Susanna Butter. And to recap, they picked Catch-22, Orange is the New Black and Stranger Things on screen. In books, David Nichols' Sweet Sorrow and Deborah Levy's The Man Who Saw Everything. And in music, new albums by Liam Gallagher and Lana Del Rey. Plenty to get your teeth into this summer. The Monocle Culture Show is, of course, produced by Holly Fisher. And I've been Robert Bound. We'll be back at the same time next week but for the time being thanks for tuning in 